Well, church, I do want to welcome everyone at all of our campuses and those online. Those in the room, can we welcome everyone who's joining us this weekend? Amazing. And uh, if you are new, welcome to the party. We're thrilled that you are here. We, we uh, meet weekly and uh, we meet across 15 locations and we would love for you just to be a part and hopefully uh, pray that you find this a place that you can belong. And we recognize and we say often we're not for everybody, uh, but we do believe we are for somebody and we pray that somebody is you. And know this, if you, if you ever walk away from Northview and you think, hey, that, that church just wasn't the right for, fit for me. Uh, we're not offended. What we just care deeply about is that you find a community of faith uh, that you can commit to and you can grow in your relationship with God. And I can tell you, I've had the opportunity over the last couple of years uh, just to meet some wonderful pastors in our area. And so if I'm not uh, what you had in mind for your pastor, I, I get it. Um, but just know that we can point you in the direction of some amazing churches. And we're thankful for the other churches in our community and all that they do. We're on the same team. And so just find yourself in a faith community where you can get in and uh, grow in your relationship with God. And we are in a series called How to Pick a Fight. And if you're showing up for the first time, this is week five. You've shown up to the end of the movie. And you can go back online and watch these messages. But ultimately, we are talking about the art of conflict, that there's an art to this. And Scripture lays before us an unorthodox approach to fighting. In fact, Scripture is oftentimes calling us to live very counterintuitive and uh, to go against the tendencies of our flesh to live in step with the Holy Spirit and to honor God with all that we are. Because one thing we've been establishing in this series is the quality of your life is directly influenced by the quality of your relationships. And so if you want life to get better, uh, your relationships need uh, to get better. Scripture says you are the sum average of your five closest friends. Uh, so who in your life needs to get promoted and who in your life needs to get demoted, right? And uh, I just think it's just learning to say, hey, I, I wanna move things towards health and I wanna thrive relationally uh, in my life. And we talked about in week one that much of conflict and how God wants us to approach it is anchored in knowing who's in your corner first. Uh, self-awareness, that Jesus didn't come for people with self-righteousness. He came for people with self-awareness, people who understood, hey, I need this grace, I need this savior, I need his help, I need his instruction. And it's learning to assess yourself before you address anybody else because ownership separates the overwhelmed from the overcomer. And once you can take ownership and responsibility, once you're the type of person who courageously can admit, hey, I'm at fault and I'm not perfect and I came up short and I need to ask for your forgiveness, uh, it is then that you're ready to engage and then it becomes a matter of empathy and, and gentleness. And it's maybe not focusing on putting someone in their place, uh, but maybe having the courage to put yourself in their place and learning to lean in with the goal of understanding uh, rather than to undermine. And that is where we've gradually been moving. Last week, we talked about iron sharpening iron and the misconceptions that sometimes come within Christian relationships that we think that there should come a point that we should arrive at some utopia. Maybe that's the version of Christianity someone sold you. Become a Christian and all your problems will go away. Anyone sold that lie? You became a Christian and suddenly you blew a tire on the way home and things went wrong. And there's a spiritual warfare sometimes to this deal. And what you find is, um, this thing doesn't always get easier, uh, but it is always worth it. And it's just learning to say, hey, the people in my life are worth my extra effort to carry these relationships forward because you can either dissolve the relationship or you can resolve the conflict. And wise are those who say, let's get through this together so we can carry this relationship forward. And I'm excited today because 
I get to talk about uh, two of my favorite characters in all the Bible. In fact, I would probably say that in this message uh, series, this might be my favorite message, primarily because I get to geek out over these two characters and extensively tell their story. And those two individuals are Paul and Barnabas, two of arguably the greatest leaders in the entire church history. And what's amazing about Paul and Barnabas is these aren't their original names. Paul is actually named Saul and Barnabas is actually named Joseph. And so these are nicknames that were given to him, which I love because God at times uh, gives people different names. And I love that because he is so attentive to our lives that at times he will even change the labels that were placed on us. You want to thank for a God who changed some labels? Uh, you went from worthless to love. You went from rejected to cherished. It's a beautiful thing. And Paul and Barnabas are the first two missionaries in the history of the church. The first two to ever set out on a mission to go into parts of the world that there was no church and there was no representation of the gospel. In fact, there was hostility towards the faith and they uh, were the first two missionaries and they left a legacy that still to this day, uh, we look at and we're inspired and we seek to duplicate. And what you find is Paul and Barnabas, they set out on this missionary journey. And after they complete this pretty significant loop of visiting different regions and planting churches and raising up leaders and planting churches and raising up leaders and planting churches and raising up leaders, they just keep moving on to the next place. Uh, there comes a point where they're discerning as to whether or not we should make a second lap. Should we take the journey again to check in on people? And it's in this moment that these two giants of the faith have a dispute. And what we're going to look at today, I believe, is a great example of this is what it looks like when two godly, high character filled people lean in and see a conflict through to resolve. And this is what it looks like. And it tells us this in Acts chapter 15. It says, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. And Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise. Someone say wise. We're going to come back to that. To take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company and Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And this is so fascinating to me because in this moment, you have these giants of the faith, individuals who are just so bent on honoring God, who have high integrity, and they have this long-standing relationships. In fact, you could argue that Paul and Barnabas were BFF which I know we now live in a time where we just throw that term around. Like some of you, you have like 37 BFFs. And, uh, you know, I think Paul and Barnabas were BFFs. They were best friends. And there's a whole journey uh, that develops their relationship and it's captured in scripture. And what you find in this moment is these two come to a situation and they have a sharp disagreement. I've titled this message, Split Decision, which is a boxing term which essentially says, hey, when all the rounds have expired and when all the time is up and the fight is over, both fighters are still on their feet. 
And now it's a split decision. And now you have to leave it to the judges to determine who won and who lost. And I think sometimes one of the greatest ways to tell you have two good fighters in the ring is when all is said and done, both are still standing on their feet. That's when you know you have two good fighters. And sometimes that runs against the grain of how we're approaching a fight. We want to step in the ring, throw some haymakers, knock the other person out before they knock us out. Can I get an amen? And what would it look like to be a part of relationships that despite the conflicts and the tension, uh, we approach our fights in a way that aims to have both fighters still on their feet when all said and done. It's a split decision. But the question a lot of times that we're always wrestling with when it comes to conflict is who's right and who's wrong? I mean, that's what you're thinking about, right? Like you get into a conflict and you are fully aware as to why you're right. Because we go throughout our days rehearsing our arguments. We're, we're really familiar with our point of views and our opinions. So we know why we're right. Uh, and a lot of times we never take into consideration, um, but where are they coming from? And I think the challenge there is when we're so bent on right versus wrong and someone winning and someone, someone losing, it just perpetuates dysfunction because in order for you to be the winner, the other person has to be a loser. And it's just learn to say, is there a different approach here? But the question in this text between Paul and Barnabas was who was right? And this is where, you know, you gotta settle in with me because we're gonna cover a ton of scripture. You have to take into account Barnabas's journey as well as Paul's journey to decide who was right? Who won this fight? And we've all heard the statement, there are two sides to every story. And in this moment, these two great men of God come to a situation, they have a sharp disagreement, they part company, and what you find is someone in the moment, um, well, leaps out in our mind as to they're right or they're wrong. That's how we're primed to think at least. And I think if you go through the pages of scripture, you, you realize uh, both of them have a leg to stand on. Barnabas shows up in Acts chapter four. This is when he arrives on the scene. The church is just getting started and the apostles are just beginning their work within the region. And it says that immediately they're trying to meet some needs and they're trying to cast vision for the local church and they're trying to advance the gospel. And what happens is, is there are so many needs among them that the people within the community start to respond to the needs. It's a beautiful thing. And it says one individual took it so serious and was so confident in Jesus Christ and his work within the world and believed so much within the local church and seen the potential of the apostles and what they were trying to accomplish that this individual sold an entire plot of land and then brought the prophets to the apostles and said, hey, I'm, I'm all in. I believe in the local church. I trust Jesus. I trust your leadership. Hey, you steward these resources as you see fit. I, I'm all in on this church deal. To which the apostles were like, oh my goodness, this guy has uh, such a breath of fresh air. He's putting so much wind in our sails and he is such an encouragement to what we're doing. Uh, we should give him a nickname. And so the guy's name was Joseph, and they give him the nickname Barnabas because Barnabas means son of encouragement. So immediately Barnabas shows up on the scene as someone who believes in other people, someone who is an encourager and someone who is willing to invest and to bet on the opportunities of other people. It's an amazing 
you know, identity that is placed upon Barnabas. Well, then a couple chapters later, we are introduced to Saul from Tarsus, like dun, 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 because when he shows up on the scene, he's not a preacher. He's a persecutor. In fact, he's a leader of persecutors. There comes a point where one of the early disciples by the name of Stephen is preaching. And some people wanted to stomp out this, this new community of faith following Jesus. And so what they do is they decide to stone Stephen. And Saul from Tarsus stands back and he holds everybody's coats while they chuck rocks and kill Stephen. And he gives his support to his murder. So much so, Paul then, you know, who would become known as Paul, Saul at the time, uh, thinks it is his mission in the world to stomp out this new movement of followers of Christ. So he goes and gets permission from the leading authorities. Hey, would you grant me authority to make my way throughout the region because now these believers are scattering and to punish them, to arrest them, to persecute them, and if needed, uh, to put them down and stone them. Would you give me permission to which they do? And so Saul heads uh, off to a town called Damascus. He gets word that there's some of these believers taking refuge in a town called some, uh, Damascus, and he heads to Damascus, and on the road to Damascus, maybe you've heard the phrase, a road to Damascus experience. Well, that comes from Saul's story. On the road to Damascus, uh, heading in the wrong direction with the wrong people for the wrong reasons, Jesus gets it right. Anyone thankful for that? Like, I mean, Paul could not have been going more sideways, wrong direction, wrong people, wrong reason, yet Jesus still shows up and gets it right. And what I love about it is it says Jesus meets him on the road and knocks him off his horse. Jesus was the first to knock someone off his high horse. And I think he shows up every single week seeking to do the same in our lives, right? Because again, Jesus didn't come for people with self-righteousness. He came for people with self-awareness. And every single one of us has this tendency to mount ourselves upon high horses and just know as Christians, we're not better than anybody, we're just better off. By the grace of God, our eternity is secured. I'm not better than you. I'm just better off because of what Christ did for me. So this doesn't mean I get the right to look down on people. This means I have the responsibility to look out for people. It's a significant difference. And Saul has this encounter. It says it's a bright, illuminating experience. So much so, it blinds him. It says he's blind for three days and he's brought into town and he's staying at this house and God tells a man by the name of Ananias, hey, I need you to go and pray over this man named Saul. He's my chosen instrument. I'm gonna use him to do remarkable things to which Ananias is like, God, let me cue you in on who this Saul guy is. You wanna sometimes approach God in your prayers thinking you have to inform him of some things? Ananias is like, man, this guy's nuts. He showed up to take us out. I think we should be plotting our own plan uh, to get to him first. And God's like, no, uh, I'm gonna use him greatly because what you find in that moment is it's only been three days. And what we often get exposed of in Saul's story and in many stories that take place within the local church, oftentimes the turnaround time of grace makes us religious folks a little uncomfortable. I mean, it's just so fast. It's like, man, this guy showed up to do damage and already 72 hours in, you're like, I, I'm for him. I love him. I'm gonna do something amazing in his life. And 
So Ananias, he goes and he meets with Saul. But what you find is the group there within the city uh, is not really high on this idea that Saul is joining the team. In fact, they're aware of what he did to Stephen and his participation in that and his agenda showing up on the, in the city. And so they think, hey, we need to take him out. So much so that they start to plot uh, ways to kill Saul. So they have to sneak Saul out of town. You gotta read your Bible because this stuff is hilarious. They actually put him in a basket and they lower him out of a window outside the wall. Like, bro, you gotta go, just get out of here. So Saul then decides, okay, I, I've now surrendered my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Uh, I need to figure out what I do next. I'm gonna head back to Jerusalem and meet with the leaders of the church. And maybe the apostles can help me understand uh, what I'm supposed to do now that I'm a follower of Christ. So Saul heads back to Jerusalem, to which the apostles are like, absolutely not. We're not gonna give you audience. You just took out one of our friends. Why would we give you the time of day? To which an individual steps up to the plate and says, guys, I actually believe Jesus is that great. And I actually trust this man's testimony. And I think we should give him a shot. And who was that individual? Barnabas, and here's where their lives start to intersect. Barnabas steps to the plate as an individual who has all this relational equity with the apostles because the apostles have seen his character. They've seen his intent and they're like, man, we, we trust Barnabas. And Barnabas is like, hey, I'm willing to risk my credibility and my relational equity with you uh, to put my neck out on the line for this Saul guy. And so Saul is welcomed into the uh, company of the apostles. They start to allow him to do some ministry there in Jerusalem. But eventually, Saul heads home to Tarsus. In fact, what happens is when we read scripture, sometimes we go from sentence to sentence, paragraph to paragraph, chapter to chapter, and we never really take into account how much time are we talking about in these sentences. And when Saul goes home to Tarsus, we find that he doesn't, come back onto the scene for another 10 years. He's found to be in obscurity for a season, uh, which I think sometimes divine opportunities are always preceded uh, with the season of obscurity. God has to develop you uh, in private, right? Because uh, sometimes it is private faithfulness uh, that leads to public usefulness. And during those 10 year period, the church continues to grow. The gospel is being shared with the Gentiles, which was a radical idea. And so now it has jumped outside the Jewish community and people of non-Jewish descent are receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, which wave at me if you're of non-Jewish descent. Yeah, come on, 90% of you should probably raise your hands. We're all in this category. So this is part of our story. And there starts this church in a town called Antioch. And Antioch, is the first predominantly Gentile church in church history. It's the first time there's more Gentiles than Jews in this church. And so the apostles decide, hey, we need to send a leader to Antioch also that they can assess what's going on and provide some leadership and some guidelines and help them really thrive in that community. Who should we send? And they think, wow, you know who we should send? We should send Barnabas because he just believes in people. He sees their potential and he's willing to do whatever he can to help them succeed. So Barnabas goes to Antioch and he realizes pretty quickly, I can't do this by myself. I'm gonna need some extra help and I'm gonna need to bring someone along with me. Who should I bring with me? I know who I should go get. 
Saul from Tarsus. So Barnabas leaves Antioch. I know this is the whole story, but this is why you should read your Bible. Maybe if you read your Bible, I wouldn't have to explain it so much, but (laughs) we're going to get there. So he goes to Tarsus and he's like, hey, I I want you to join me. I haven't forgot about you. I know it's been 10 years, but I still believe in God's work in your life. Would you come join me? So Paul goes and joins Barnabas in Antioch. And what you find is God blesses their ministry. They start raising up leaders. The church grows and gains influence. And eventually the leaders within the church decide, wow, you two have been such a blessing. We need to send you out so you can go and do for other communities what you've done for our community. We want you to go plant other churches and raise up other leaders. And so they send out Paul and Barnabas as the first two missionaries in the history of the church. And they go on their first mission. It's amazing. They go on this exhaustive journey where they go from city to city, town to town, many of which were hostile to the faith, and they raise up leaders and they plant churches. And then comes Acts chapter 15, where Paul says, hey, I think we should go on another lap of the journey, revisiting the churches and the leaders. And Barnabas is like, yeah, I think that's a good idea. We should bring Mark, to which Paul says, I don't think that's wise. Last time he deserted us, and clearly he wasn't fit for the fight, and this is a daunting assignment. I don't think it would be wise to bring him, to which the two have a sharp disagreement and they split ways. And again, the question is who was right? I mean, some of us in the room, your team Barnabas, you're thinking to yourself, Paul, you don't have a leg to stand on. We wouldn't even know who you are if it wasn't for Barnabas. You would have never got an audience with the apostles. You would have been left for dead in Tarsus. It was Barnabas who put his neck out on the line, who believed in you, seen potential, and created opportunities for you. And the same thing he did for you, now he's trying to do it for Mark. How can't you see this? Barnabas is right. How many of you, come on, wave at me if you're team Barnabas. You're like, I don't know if I should answer this, right? Where others of you, you're like, I'm team Paul. I mean, Barnabas didn't write any books of the Bible. Paul's got quite a few. (laughs) Clearly, God chose him as an instrument of usefulness and impact. And and if you've served in any measure of leadership, maybe you can relate to Paul. Sometimes as leaders, there's this daunting task where you have to make wise decisions on behalf of other people. And I gotta tell you, as a leader myself, I've actually have come up short in this area so many times because what can happen is, is you can be so sold on a person's potential that you can prematurely position them uh, to take on an assignment they're not ready for. That then becomes detrimental and overwhelming. And before you know it, you pick the fruit too early and you can actually uh, do harm to the leader. And and Paul's saying, yeah, I, I... I don't wanna do that to him. Last time it was clear he wasn't fit for the fight and this next journey is going to be even harder and I'm not trying to be cruel. I just don't think it's wise uh, to prematurely put someone in such a place or position of pressure. And so some of you think, yeah, I'm, I'm with Paul. I think Paul was right. And here is where so many people go wrong in conflict. And here's where I think God's like, here's an example of what godly conflict looks like. Because one question that you have to ask every time you read scripture is why does God put this in the Bible? Why is this here? 
And everything in scripture, God places there as something for you and I to look at because he thinks you can learn something here. Hey, hey folks, you can learn something here. Church, even 2,000 years later, we can learn something here. And the question is, is what can we learn in this situation? And that is this. We often get things wrong when both sides are right. See, we've been so conditioned to think, no, in every conflict, someone's right and someone's wrong. And where we go wrong is when both sides are right. Sometimes one spouse feels disrespected and one spouse feels unappreciated. Both are right. I get the opportunity to have conversations and have a front row seat to families and marriages and companies and businesses and leaders. And a lot of times I walk away from situations that they've invited me in to somehow mediate. And I sometimes think both are right. Both the boss and the employee in that situation are right. Both the student and the teacher are right. Both the parent and the child, right. Both spouses, right. Both business partners, right. And a lot of times we don't have the ability to lean in in maturity to realize, hey, we can approach this where both of us can be left standing when all is said and done. And I think what Paul and Barnabas teach us is it's not about being right. It's about getting it right. It's just a different, it's like saying, hey, listen, I'm not trying to be a winner in order to make you a loser. I'm not trying to do any of that. I just want you and I to get this right. Can we manage this situation in a way that honors God, moves the relationship towards greater health and keeps things in a fashion that continues to glorify God in our relationships? Like, can we get this Right, and a way of clarifying it is pride is concerned with who's right. And every single one of us is gonna fall tempted into this temptation. Well, I'm right, right? That's pride sometimes speaking. But humility is concerned with what is right. And in this moment, Paul and Barnabas, they have a sharp disagreement. They're not on the same page. And every single one of us can relate to being in a relational tension where we're not on the same page. And what Paul and Barnabas teach us and maybe something we need to consider in our conflicts is this. When you're not on the same page, remember, you're on the same team. Because here's what we so foolishly do, and that's not a judgment on you because I'm guilty of this stuff as well. We assume in order for me to be right, something has to be wrong with them. Right? And so we, we jump to this conclusion that, hey, if we're not on the same page, we can't be on the same team. And scripture's saying, yeah, that's nonsense. When you're not on the same page, remember you're still on the same team and you can move this towards health. Yeah, the relationship may change a little bit and yeah, it may come with you know, some new expectations and some boundaries or whatever that looks like, um, but you can be on the same team and you can move it towards health. Because what they also teach us is just because you're on the same team doesn't mean, oh, this is a big one, you'll always be heading in the same direction. You see, what every single one of us is gonna be tempted to do and what you're seeing uh, become the norm within our world is we are so primed with the tendency to lean towards codependency. And we fall into this assumption 
that God makes duplicates and that God made a carbon copy of you. And so there are people in your life who their life is going to run parallel with your life for the rest of your life. And then the moment God places a dream in front of you or an opportunity in front of you, the moment you have to decide, hey, in this season, I think this is the wise decision for me. Or if someone comes to you and say, hey, in this season, I think this is the wise decision for me. The moment we start to deviate and go in different directions, we misinterpret the, the gap and the differing directions. And we assume, well, if I'm heading in this direction and you're heading in that direction, well, if I'm right, something's wrong with the direction you're heading in. And again, scripture's like, yeah, that's, that's nonsense. But here's what we have been sold. And that is this idea that wisdom is black and white. That's what they're arguing over. This is a, a wisdom matter. Paul's saying, hey, I, I just, I don't think it's wise. I don't think it's wise. It is a wisdom matter. And here's the thing. Wisdom's not black and white. What is wise for you may not be wise for somebody else. So yeah, it might be wise for you to make that investment. And it might be wise for you to start that company or go back to school or start trying to have kids or buy the house. That might be wise for you, but that doesn't mean universally it's wise for everybody else. Are you tracking with me? And sometimes it's just learning to say, hey, every single one of us is charged with the task of making what is the wise decision for me in this situation. And what Paul and Barnabas teach us is a difference of opinion doesn't make someone in opposition. And where we go wrong is the moment we're in relationship with somebody and we start to head in different directions, we assume the worst of the other person. And a lot of times what you realize is very few people in your life are gonna be with you for the long haul. And that doesn't make them wrong and it doesn't make you wrong. It's just how life works. Some people are in your life for a season and some people are in your life for a reason. They're either a blessing or a lesson. Like God's gonna use your crazy butt to teach me something, right? And what you find is very few people are with you for the long haul. This is where if you're a young adult, like, please just hear me on this. Right now, you're probably in this season where, I mean, you have extra margin to be more social and, and all the opportunities are before you and you're surrounded with great friends and that's amazing, live it up. Uh, but just know there's a, probably a good chance that in this season, you are overvaluing, overvaluing your friendships and undervaluing your family. And that will uh, get exposed at some point. At some point you'll realize, oh my goodness, <laughs> there's no stability that can be offered quite like a family. And most of us serve as scaffolding in each other's lives. Scaffolding that is used to help build the home, but once the home is built, the scaffolding goes away. And sometimes it's recognizing, God, thank you for surrounding me with scaffolding and people who pour into my life and develop me and believe in me. Um, and God, would you help me to be scaffolding for other people? And, and God, if I'm in someone's life, let me be in their life for a good reason and let me cherish the relationship and the time that I have. And, and if we start to move in different directions, help me not to misinterpret that. So yeah, sometimes you have to move in a different direction. Sometimes it's, it's time to leave the company. But maybe you can leave in a way that uh, doesn't burn the bridge. Or maybe it's time for you and your roommate to move out and find different living arrangements. 
Uh, maybe it's time for you to just say, hey, I've been a part of this group of friends, but I see an opportunity and, and I'm gonna go after it. A lot of times it's as simple as like, hey, two friends, one decided to be an engineer, one decided to be a veterinarian. And it wasn't because either one was wrong, they just went in different directions. But we're so primed to think, if you ever move in a different direction from me, something's wrong with you. And we misinterpret it as betrayal. And then what happens is, is we overlook the fact that you and I are called to be bridge builders because we're followers of Christ who is the ultimate bridge builder. I mean, he comes from heaven to earth and he bridges the gap between us and our heavenly father. And how does he do it? He takes two pieces of wood in the form of a cross and he allows all of humanity to trample over him. He is the ultimate bridge builder. And I think scripture saying, yeah, be the type of person who has the maturity and the wisdom to carry relationships forward. One of the wisest things you can do is carry your relationships forward and be a bridge builder. But what we're taught to do is to be bridge burners. And you can see this everywhere. Every exit is an entrance. The moment you step out of something, you are essentially stepping into something else. And I'm convinced how you exit has a big part in how you enter. And I would just say, hey, if you ever find yourself in a season of exit, exit in a way that invites God's favor onto your entrance. God, I wanna exit in a way that whatever I step into next, you're gonna bless and honor it. And it's just learning to say, I wanna be a bridge builder, not a bridge burner, because we can find in companies and schools and teams and families, my goodness, you see it all the time in churches. We don't know how to handle change. We don't know how to handle transitions. And what happens is, is the moment we move in different directions, we burn bridges and we don't carry the relationship forward. And scripture's saying, yeah, but that's not what we're gonna do. We're better than that. So I think conflict, it requires good communication, but even more than that, it requires good conduct. I would say it this way. Good communication brings you close, but good conduct is what closes the deal. Right, like the best apology, my goodness, is a changed behavior. Come on, can I get an amen? Man, stop telling me you're sorry, just change the behavior. The best apology is a changed behavior. And what Paul and Barnabas do, they have the sharp disagreement, but then they move forward in a way that honors one another. They conduct themselves in a way that keeps the door open relationally. Hey, who knows what God's gonna do and how this is gonna circle back. I'm still for you. And here's the beautiful thing. When both sides do the right things, things end in the right way. I'm telling you, some of you, you're probably looking at this, you're like, well, that's not, that's so unrealistic. Um, because here's the hard thing, a bridge has to bank on two sides of the river. And we can't control the other bank. But it's just saying, God, I wanna be the person who makes sure my bank is something you can count on. And I'm gonna pray that you're gonna position me in relationships where I can bank on the other person as well to carry this relationship forward. It's good conduct that closes the deal. And when we both do things right, things end in the right way because here's the beautiful thing. And I end with this. Paul says, hey, we should, we should go back and do this tour again. If you go to your Bible maps, if you have maps in the back of your Bible, it actually shows you the missionary journey. And what you find is when Paul sets out on the second journey, he revisits every town from the first journey but one, 
Fascinating. And it just so happens to be the one town that Barnabas took Mark. And in some way, together collectively, they moved forward in a way that honored God and somehow still together, they completed the mission. So much so years down the road, Paul is this wild man. He's taking on all these crazy challenges and daunting assignments and he's planting churches and he's raising up leaders and he's working with this one protege by the name of Timothy. And he's writing him this letter and he's, he's saying, hey, um, this is what you need to be aware of and here's some instructions for your leadership and here's some things I need from you. I need some extra help. So know that only Luke is with me, Timothy. So go and get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. It's, it's beautiful because they carried the relationship forward because they were bridge builders, not bridge burners. Years down the road, Barnabas does what is wise for him. I got to develop John Mark. Paul does what's wise for him. I got to go on this mission. And it recircles back where because they carried the relationship forward, Paul was aware of Mark's development. And Paul gets to a point where he realizes, hey, he's now ready. I could use his help. That's beautiful. And I just wonder how many missed opportunities are a casualty in our life because we mismanage relationships uh, recklessly. And I just wanna encourage us as we end this series, maybe just maybe where you're going wrong in your conflict is because you're assuming the other person is entirely at fault. And maybe both of you are right. And maybe if both sides do the right thing, you'll be surprised how they end in the right way. Amen.